the fifty-third chapter of Isaiah's prophecy, a couple of phrases from the center of verse 3, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. Some might say that this is a most mournful subject. Some might say that this is more of a funeral dirge than of a joyful Christian testimony. But that, my friend, is not so. For the triumph of Christ depends upon his trials. The coronation of Christ depends upon his crucifixion. And the salvation of the sinner depends upon the sorrows and the wounds of the Lord. So Calvary is not only a place of suffering, but it is a place of salvation. It is not only a place marked with the trials of the Son of God, in the passion and agony of his propitiatory work for us upon the tree. But praise God, it is a place of triumph, for he destroyed him that had the power of death, that is to say the devil, and delivered them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Now, if you look with me at these two phrases, you will find that there are three things worthy of consideration. First of all, we have the expression, Amen. Here we have the great supernatural revelation that God became man. I want to discuss that with you under the caption, A Staggering Truth. God became man. Secondly, we have Christ described as a man of sorrow. I want to discuss that with you under the caption, A Strange Thought That God Should Become Man. That's a staggering truth, but it's a strange thought that God should become a man of sorrow. And then last of all, the text goes on to emphasize that God became man, yes, but that God became a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And we have adding to a sorrows a great oceanic fullness of this world's griefs. That, my friend, is a startling thing. The griefs of God's eternal Son. So we're going to talk about a staggering truth, a strange thought, and a startling thing. First of all, a staggering thought. God became man. 
This is one of the golden bells that the Bible rings out for, that God became man. We could never dwell too much on this great staggering truth that the Almighty, infinite God, whom heaven and earth cannot contain, became contained in an infant, scarce a span long, lying in his mother's arms, or cradled in Bethlehem's manger, that all omnipotence should be concentrated in the muscle of the arm of Christ. That is a subject, my friend, that staggers the finite minds of men to explain. No wonder the poet lifted his pen and he said, I know not how that Bethlehem's being could in the Godhead be. But this I know, the manger child has brought God's life to me. The greatest became the least. The highest became the lowest. The mightiest became the humblest. God became man. The Creator became the creature. The Son of God became the Son of Man. He who was the theme of angels' worship in the celestial palaces of eternal and everlasting glory became the song of the drunkards in the wine taverns of Jerusalem. That, my friend, is a staggering thought, a staggering truth. The manhood of Jesus Christ is real. Jesus was not a phantom. Jesus Christ was truly God, but he was also truly man. Everything that we understand about manhood, Jesus had apart from sin. He was made in the likeness of sinful flesh. He knew all the afflictions. He knew all the temptations. He knew all the weaknesses that are inherent in human flesh and in the human nature. He was man. And from that I learn a blessed relationship with my Lord. He's not a stranger. You know, in the Old Testament, there's a lovely little book tucked away after the book of Judges. It's called the Book of Ruth. It tells the story in oriental fashion of the office and the work of the kinsman redeemer, the Goan, the man who could redeem. You are quite aware that in every law enacted in the realms of men, there is a special place given to the kinsman, the nearest to the deceased one. But in the old Hebrew law, it was the person who was the kinsman who could redeem the heritage that was lost. It took the kinsman redeemer to do the job. But Christ, the second person of the glorious Trinity, is yonder in heaven. He's far away from us. He's above the world. He's out yonder in God's great eternity. How can he enter into a relationship 
near and close, that he can redeem us. Praise God, in his incarnation that great gulf was spanned. And the one who was God became man and entered into a blessed relationship with every one of us. He's not far away from us this morning. We were singing and we commenced this service purposely with that hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Yesterday afternoon I was down doing some constituency work in North Antrim and in Vanside. I was in the home of the late Constable Miller, one of those young boys who lost their lives through the subversion of these IRA men. I was sitting with his mother in her home. And she said to me, Mr. Paisley, I'd like to show you something. And she brought me into the room. And she said, the last thing my boy did in this home was to put up two gospel tanks. Beautifully carved. Beautifully illuminated. And she said, there they are there. You know what one of those texts said? What think ye of Christ? He is all together lovely. And the other text said, it is the Lord. And as that dear woman stood there, and hot tears of sorrow flooded down her cheeks, she said, isn't it a nice thought that my boy did this last thing for me? He erected on the walls of this home his own personal testimony. He was a sincere and wonderful Christian, and so was his companion that lost his life as well. You know, Jesus Christ is not far away from us. There's plenty of sorrow in this old world. We'll all of our cup full of it before we're finished. But let me tell you, Jesus Christ has entered into a blessed relationship with us He's bone of our bone, he's flesh of our flesh. We can reach out our hands and we can touch him. He's right beside you. He's a man. There's a blessed relationship here. There's something else. There's a blessed encouragement here. You know, his hand no thunder bears. No terrors clothe his brow. No bolts to drive your guilty souls to fiercer flames below. Jesus is not against us. Praise God, he's for us. He came not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Behold the hands of the man. They are filled with blessing for each one of us. Behold the eyes of this man. They are lighted with an inextinguishable flame of pardon, pity, and love for all who will turn to him. Behold the heart of Jesus. It's filled with love that's deep, that, with love that's broad, with love that's high. For every guilty soul, he will turn in penitence to his cross. 
Behold the face of Jesus. He smiles in love upon all who seek him. Behold the lips of Jesus. They drop sweet words of pardon and salvation to all who will heed and hearken to the message. Jesus Christ encourages us to come. You know, I've discovered something. The only animal that a child is not afraid of is a lamb. I've never met a child yet that ever ran away from a little lamb. I've seen children running away from dogs and other animals. But there's something that even a child trusts about a little lamb. I know my own children. When they see little lambs in the field, they just want to get out of the car and go over to them. You know, there's a lesson for us there. Jesus took the title, the Lamb of God. There's nothing to fear from Jesus. He's not against you, friend. He's for you. He loves you. He wants to lift that burden. He wants to carry that difficult problem. He wants to solve the difficulties of life. He wants to make the crooked places straight and the rough places smooth. Oh, there is a Blessed encouragement in the fact that he's a man. But there's something else. There's a blessed enlightenment for me in the fact that he's a man. You know what the Bible tells me? And be enlightened this morning. He was tempted in all points like as we are. I just underline that word all. And when the Bible says all, it means all. So there's not a temptation that you ever had that Jesus didn't have. There's not a problem in life that you've got to face that Jesus didn't face. He knew all about sorrow. He knew all about loneliness. As we shall see as we continue. There's not a pain that rends the human heart, but the man of sorrows hath a part. So we have a blessed relationship here, and we have a blessed encouragement here, and thank God we have a blessed enlightenment here. He is a man. That is the staggering truth. But then we have a strange thought. He is the man of sorrow. I was thinking about that. In the Hebrew, that is what we call an emphatic statement. There is a special emphasis upon it. The Bible doesn't say that he was a sorrowful man. The Bible says he was a man of sorrows. We use that expression concerning the main characteristic of a man. We talk about a man of wealth. And a man of position. There were many things that distinguished Jesus Christ. We could talk of him as a man of pity. There was no one so filled with pity as Jesus was. You remember when his disciples were weary, there were so many people coming and going. Jesus was still carrying on his acts of healing. He was a man of pity. 
He was a man of love. Remember when that rich young man turned to go away from Jesus? The Lord looks upon the receding figure of the Christ rejecter, and it says he loved him. He was a man of love. He was a man of labor. The disciples got weary, and they went into the city to buy bread. But Jesus sat in his weariness at the well of Sychar, and he led that poor, scarlet-stained sinner to himself. And when the disciples came and said, You look rested, Master. Did someone give you to eat? He said, I have meat to eat that you knew not of. He was a man of labor. He was a man of prayer. We read in the Bible that every man went to his own house. But Jesus went up into the mountain to pray. He was a man of eloquence. Never man spake like this man. He was a man of holiness. He was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. But my friend, you never read in the Bible the expression that he was a man of pity or a man of love or a man of labors or a man of prayer or a man of eloquence or a man of holiness. But you read he was a man of sorrow because he was distinguished. Note how he is distinguished. He is a man of sorrow. You know, there are many things that make sorrow. There's a sorrow that comes because we have to change the place where we want to live. And when you have to change your place of abode, there's a tinge of sorrow comes. Because the old home has its characteristics that some way binds the twines of affection to your heart. Jesus had the sorrow of leaving the Father's house. He left his place of abode. He knew the sorrow of leaving, of leaving home. He was not called the man of sorrow. He was called the man of sorrows. He knew the sorrow of poverty. He who was rich, yet for our sakes became poor. He knew the sorrow of bereavement. He stood at the grave of Lazarus, his friend. And we read the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. He knew the sorrow of loneliness. Kneeling yonder under the olive trees in Gethsemane's garden. He looks at his sleeping disciples and he says, Could ye not watch with me one hour? He was a lonely man that night as blood bedewed his face and forehead and he swept great drops of crimson gore for you and me. He knew the poverty of disappointment. Those that professed to love him went back and walked no more with him. He's a man of sorrows. He was distinguished by sorrow. I want you to notice not only how he is distinguished, but where he is thus distinguished. The world is a world of sorrow, and yet among all the sorrows of this world, Christ is preeminent in his sorrow. 
Behold and see, is there any sorrow like unto my sorrow? There is no sorrow like the sorrow of Jesus Christ. The stronger the person, the more deep the love, the more tragic the grief. There are different types of sorrow. There is the sorrow of a child. That's very real. A child's tears are real tears. A child's troubles are real troubles. But they're not very deep. I've stood at the grave side. I've seen a strong man hold one little hand in this hand and one little hand in the other of two little orphans. And he has looked down into that grave and the wife and companion of his home lies there in death. And I've seen his chest heave. And I've seen great scalding tears run down his rugged cheeks. There's something deeper about that sorrow. That's the sorrow of a man. It doesn't be chased away overnight. It leaves a great scar upon the soul. That's the sorrow of a man. But friend, I've climbed a hill called Calvary. I have seen one whose visage was marred more than any man, and as far more than the sons of man. I've lifted my eyes and looked upon a thorn-crowned brow. I've lifted my eyes and looked upon the ill-pierced hand. I've lifted my eyes and looked upon one who gave his back to the smiter and his cheek to those that plucked off the hairs. And I've heard a cry, a cry that shook heaven and re-echoed through the caverns of hell. My God, my God, why, why, why? When I stand there, I'm in the presence of the sorrow of God. That's a different sorrow. That's the sorrow that no human tongue can explain or no human mind can understand. Help me to understand it. Help me to take it in what it meant for thee, the Holy One, to bear away my sin. He's the firstborn among his brethren. How was he distinguished? He was distinguished, my friend, as a man of sorrow. Where was he thus distinguished? He was distinguished among sorrowing people, but he himself was preeminent in his sorrows. Why is he thus distinguished? I'll tell you why. Because there was no sin in him. You know, sin makes you hard. Sin puts a crust upon your conscience. It puts a crust upon your heart. It puts hardness into the fibers of a man. And because of sin, we're not as loving as we should be. We're not as tender as we ought to be. We're not as sympathetic as we should be. But there was no sin in the makeup of Jesus. He was all tenderness, 
all love, all compassion. And friend, things that a sinner wouldn't feel, the sinless Christ felt them with all the agony of his sinlessness. That is why he was thus distinguished. One final thought, a startling theme he was acquainted with grief. We have read about grief. We have seen it in our life's experience. We have sympathized with those that were plunged under its terrible wave. We have all had our bitter experiences of grief. But Christ was acquainted with grief. The word in the original personifies grief. It makes grief a person, and it makes grief a close associate with Jesus. That is, that Christ's companion through this world was grief. His closest friend was grief. Something that stayed with him when his disciples left him. What was it? It was grief. The grief of Christ was a voluntary grief. He chose grief to be his companion in order to save me. We shun the pain. We flee from sickness. We want to rid ourselves of sorrow. But Jesus trod the path of sorrow willingly. And he became acquainted with grief. His grief was a continuous grief. From Bethlehem to Golgotha. It was grief all along the way. There wasn't a day that he didn't know the pang. There wasn't a day that he didn't feel the knife of grief in his tender heart. His griefs were bodily griefs. His whole body was the target, and every organ of his flesh became the incarnation of his grief. Read Psalm 22, when his tongue cleaved to the roof of his mouth, when his heart was melt like wax within his bowels, when every bone was out of joint, when the waves and bellows of God's wrath rolled over him. And friend, consider this wonderful and yet staggering and stupendous thought that he was acquainted with grief. Man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah! What a saint.